Good evening, everybody. How are you doing? You happy to be here? I've had a wild ride to get here. Um, I had quite the journey to get here. I was teaching an intensive at Souls West for the last three days, crammed in 15 hours of class, jumped on a plane this morning to fly here and got here at 4 with three other people to get here at uh, 6.20. But uh, we're really happy to be here. I want to ask you to entertain my curiosity for just a minute. Would you be willing to do that for me? How many of you were here last year? Good number of you. Are you grateful for the weather? Last year it was cold in Tennessee. Much, much better weather here right now. Uh, actually warmer here than it was in California when I left. Uh, we were floating around 60, 64, 40 degrees last night. It was 73 when I drove into the campus here this evening. And uh, felt very nice. Now, let me ask one other question. If you would entertain my curiosity one more time. How many of you are here as professional or uh, farmers as a vocation? Okay. And how many of you are just here as gardeners? And for some other reason? All right. So uh, farmers in the making, somebody said up front here, I think. Well, this, uh, this evening, I'd like you to pull out your uh, brochure for the conference and tell me, what is the theme for the conference? I see the screen up there, and you didn't need your bulletin at all. Restoring the waste places. And you're familiar, that scripture comes from where? Anybody know? Okay, I got Ezekiel. Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58. And uh, this, this evening, almost said this morning, this evening I'd like to, to play upon that theme. Uh, the title of my message this evening is From the Ground Up. From the Ground Up. So we're playing upon the theme of the conference, and that is to restore the waste places. I know the floor might be hard. I don't want to push my luck being that we're strangers, but could I ask you to kneel with me for prayer this evening? <clears throat> Father in heaven, I was really impressed driving into this campus to read that sign in the loop. That the Lord our God walks in the midst of our camp, and therefore the camp should be holy. And what, a, what a potent reminder of the very real and intimate presence of Jesus Christ, and a reminder of how much we need that presence, not as a company of individuals but as individuals privately. Lord, it is my request here for myself that you would, you would join me. I'm in, in need of hearing you speak, 
I am in, in need of, of you teaching me as much as anybody else here. And my life has been a journey of dependence upon you or learning dependence upon you. And Lord, I'm so grateful for where you've taken each of us and where you've brought us to. And today you've brought us here. You've brought us here to meet you, to learn about your plan, to talk about the scriptures and the life that is to come in the garden in heaven. Lord, I pray tonight that you would would be our teacher because you're the master gardener. And as an agricultural conference, we need your hand and your touch upon us as growing plants as we grow in faith and look to bear fruit will all be the result of your intimate knowledge of growing the human heart into a beautiful, beautiful garden. So Lord, this evening we ask this because I think you promised in Scripture to be our teacher, to guide us into truth, and to join us with your presence. And Lord, I take you this evening as a man of your word and ask you to fulfill your promises for us because we are dependent upon them. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all together pray and say, Amen. would like to, this evening, start with a little bit of a review. A brief review of Israel's history. You'll remember that uh, the Israelites desired a king. And their first king was Saul. And Saul started his, his career, his political career, as a converted believer. But temptation came to him, and you know that very quickly Saul went from being a good king to a bad king. And then for 38 years, Saul maintained his throne, knowing that it was going to be passed on to King David. We know that David was a good king, that he, as the Bible says, was a man after what? God's own heart. Though he had a few bumps in the road along the way, David passed on his throne and his, his uh, legacy to his son Solomon. And Solomon, for a while, walked in the steps of his father David. Solomon made a few mistakes, mistakes that cost him very dearly, didn't they? And it's here where we sort of pick up and move towards the theme of the conference as as God beheld Solomon's departure from the faith. God had to relay the unfortunate consequences of his disobedience. In 1 Kings chapter 11... If you have your Bible with me, you're welcome to turn there. 1 Kings chapter 11, God passed on the word to Solomon. He says there, I believe this is verse 12, that I will surely rend the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. But I won't do it because of David, my servant. I won't do it in your days but in the days of your son. 
And here, upon Solomon's death, we have the, the split in the kingdom. Remember, there were ten northern tribes that became Israel. And the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin were uh, passed on to the descendants of David. The unfortunate thing is that never in Israel's history, that is the northern ten tribes, did they ever have a good king. Never. You can search the Bible through. They lacked one, even one, decent leader. And several hundred years later, in the year 721, the Assyrians, being the world power of the time, came and took Israel, took them into captivity, and all that remained was the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Judah's fortune was a little better, but not great. They went through a sequence of good kings, bad kings, good kings, bad kings, sometimes several good kings, then several bad kings. And that takes us to the story of Hezekiah. Go with me to Isaiah 39. Isaiah chapter 39. You'll recall most of the story. We'll pick it up in verse 4, but while you're turning, I'll, I'll tell you the first part. Hezekiah got sick. God told him, you're going to die. Now, Hezekiah did the commendable thing. He got down on his knees, shed some tears, and as the prophet Isaiah was still leaving the facility, God said to him, go back inside and tell Hezekiah that I've heard his prayer, that I've heard his cry, and I will extend his life for 15 years. What would you say to that if that was you? was not a persuasive response. You know what Hezekiah said now, and so what would we say if that happened to us? We would hope to be a little better, and we'd say, praise the Lord. You remember the sign that Hezekiah asked for, and the sun moved backwards in the sky, that Hezekiah was healed, and that was the sign of the, the miracle of the healing, and yet over in the country of Babylon, certain men who liked to watch the heavens discerned the movement of the sun and became very curious as to what happened. And word got back that Hezekiah had been healed and that there was an association between what happened to Hezekiah and what they had seen in the sky. And so a delegation was sent from Babylon to Israel and they came and inquired at what had happened. And Hezekiah made a decision. He made a decision that was permanently to affect the tribe of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. A decision that I hope, though I am tempted, that I will not repeat. And that is to take credit to myself for what God does for me. Verse 4 says, this is the prophet Isaiah speaking. He asks of Hezekiah, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, what was it? All. All that is in my house they have seen. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not showed them. But I have to protest at this point that Solomon, excuse me, Hezekiah was not telling the truth. 
He was not telling the truth to the prophet Isaiah. He indeed did not show the Babylonians all the treasures of his house. He neglected the most important treasure in his house. He failed to tell them that the Lord was his treasure. That the Lord was the reason for everything that he had. Material goods and his very recent healing from a fatal disease. You and I are each tempted. Our church is tempted. Christianity is tempted to forget the source from which all our blessings flow. In our day-to-day walk, in our day-to-day conversations with people, we often forget to take advantage of the opportunity to point people up to the real treasure. I would ask the question, as I look at this story, did Hezekiah even know what his real treasure was? Did he value his earthly goods properly in comparison to his eternal goods? You and I face the same temptation, right? We look at our farmland. We look at our work. We look at our careers, our families, perhaps our reputation, perhaps our bank account, perhaps our looks, perhaps our whatever the things are. And we forget that they're not the real treasure. Jesus said in the scriptures that where a man's heart is, Where will it be? Where his treasure is. I want to ask you a question. Where is your treasure? What is your treasure? Who is your treasure? If someone asked you, what would you tell them? Would you tell your neighbors? Would you tell your friends? Would you tell them about the real treasure? The treasure of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, Isaiah passed on the bad news in verse 6. Verse 5, it actually starts, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the day has come that all that is in thine house, and that which thy fathers have laid up, store until this day, shall be carried to Babylon. And what does it say that he would have of all? Nothing. Nothing. It says in verse 6, shall be left. I don't want to dwell too much on this point, but my friends, we must remember, even in this conference, as good as agriculture is, as good as working the land is, as powerful and as potent nature is to teach us the realities of eternity, the beauty of Jesus Christ, the handiwork of God, as beautiful as all that is, there is one treasure that must be, be, be obtained at the price of all other treasures. To maintain the treasures on this earth is to lose the one treasure that really matters. When Hezekiah showed what he said to be was all, he wound up keeping none of it. And I, in looking at this story and looking how we get to this this theme, do not want to forget that to trade everything 
for that one treasure is to ensure that we keep everything for eternity. That's a fair trade. So Hezekiah was the, um, relatively speaking, the last decent king that Judah would have. Every king, with the exception of Josiah and the brief and uh, last-minute conversion of Manasseh, every king was a wicked king. And in the year 604, roughly, the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem, took the Israelites, the Judeans, captive into Babylon, a process of captivity that took place for nearly 20 years, from 604 to 685 B.C. And here now the people who should have been the light of the world sat in the darkness of captivity. And the city which had been set on the hill now sat in ruins. I find... I don't want to be negative. I, don't, I struggle to be positive like many of us here. But I'm, I, I must conclude from this story an evaluation of us as a society, us as a church, us as a culture. And even if I may push it a little further to say each one of us as individuals to some degree is just like ancient Israel. That we in little ways, sometimes big ways, we have given ourselves over to a captivity of a very different sort. We might be in America. We might be in the land of freedom. But that doesn't mean that we are free indeed. And that was the Jewish problem in the days of Jesus. They said to Jesus when he talked about freedom that we have never been in bondage to, what they say? Any man. But was it true? And Jesus possessed true freedom. But they, though physically free, had traded away a very different type of freedom and a very different type of captivity. We today are in captivity. Some of us more, some of us less. But we are in captivity to the philosophies and the thinking and the methods and the practices of the world around us. And we are still in need of being set free. This takes us to Isaiah chapter 58. If you turn with me there, we'll go to our, our text for the, the conference. Isaiah chapter 58, verses 11 and 12. This is a chapter that Adventists have traditionally interpreted, many Christians have interpreted to be an a, a eschatological passage, an end-time passage. And verse 11 says, The Lord shall guide thee continually and shall satisfy thy soul in drought and make fat thy bones, and thou shalt be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters fail not. And they that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations, and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the paths to dwell in. That is God's call to each one of us here tonight. 
It, it is the opportunity that God offers to each one of us tonight, not merely to be an inhabitant, but to be a restorer, to be a repairer, to be a builder of the things that once were, the things which always should have been. I, I want to I explore this passage a little bit thoroughly, or at least partially thoroughly. If you can say partially and thoroughly at the same time, that kind of strikes me as a contradiction there for a moment. But before we do that, I'd like you to turn to Isaiah 51. Let's go back just a few chapters to Isaiah 51. We'll read verse 3. And I want to point out something about the language that's here. Isaiah here prophesying most specifically regarding physical captivity in Israel, although spiritually extending that to a spiritual captivity. It shares the same theme between Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 51, verse 3. It says, the Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. And he will make her wilderness, what's it say? Like Eden. And her, say it with me, desert like the garden of the Lord. Those very words, going back to Isaiah 58, those very words appear again. And I want to point out, because this is an agricultural conference, that the work of restoration is set in the context, linguistically, in the language of natural, biological processes of gardening. God's, God's promise to restore the spiritual captivity or, or physical captivity is couched in the language of a man who takes a parched, dry, barren piece of ground and turns it into a lush garden. So being that this verse and Isaiah 51 perfectly uses agricultural, if you will, terminology, I find that the theme for this year's conference is more than adequate. Because the work of gardening in many ways, or farming or agricultural, the words are synonymous, is the work that God is doing in each of us and in our church collectively. But to explore this passage in just a little more detail, to look at a couple of words, Isaiah 51 and 58 use the words waste places. And the Hebrew word actually here indicates desert. It means to be dry. It's a dryness caused by heat and the lack of rain that leaves desolation and emptiness. And God wants to take that barren, parched land, the human heart, and make it to be a lush garden. It says here that the foundations of many generations shall be raised up, literally to be built up. And the breach, the hole in the wall to be restored. The paths to dwell in. When you think through the Bible, and you think about this passage here in particular, most often for Seventh-day Adventists, this passage takes on a very specific prophetic fulfillment for our church. And what, you will know the answer here, what specific thing have Adventists known to be the hole in the wall? 
the Sabbath. In fact, verses 13 and 14 help us to conclude that, right? Verse 13 and 14 talks about the Sabbath, turning away your foot from the Sabbath. If you do the Lord's pleasure and not our own, then we will walk in the high places of the earth and God would feed us with the heritage spiritually of Jacob, our father. And he ends with the promise, the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And I would ask, is that true that the Sabbath is a breach in the wall that must be restored? You are Seventh-day Adventists here, right? You are Sabbath keepers. Let me rephrase my question. The answer is yes. But let me rephrase my question. Is that the work in full and exclusively? No, it's not. To go a little bit earlier in the chapter, I'd like to take a look at uh, Isaiah chapter 58, verse 6. And verse 7, Isaiah 58, verse 6 says, Is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, that you break every yoke? Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, that thou bring the poor that are cast out to your house, when you see the naked, that you cover him, and that you hide not yourself from your own flesh? And now skip down with me to verse 10. And if thou shalt draw out thy soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity and thy darkness shall be as a noonday. And please tell me the very first word of verse 11. And. Now, and in English is a conjoining word, right? It takes what's before and what's after and puts them together as one united idea. Is that correct? Okay, so what God, what, what Isaiah 58 is suggesting is that, that the, the message of the Sabbath truth, though it be given to the entire world, is not a fulfillment of Isaiah 58, if that's all that's done. If all that's done is, and if you did it with the, the most sophisticated technology and social media that's available to the church today, if you were able to take the Sabbath truth and make it a worldwide known fact tomorrow, would we have fulfilled the commission of Isaiah 58? No. We have not. Because there are two parts to fulfilling Isaiah 58. And they are not separable. The Sabbath is an outward sign of the rest that God offers. The Sabbath is an outward sign of the freedom from captivity that God offers. And that, that symbol means nothing if it's not reality. Because without setting free the afflicted soul, without liberating the soul that is captive to sin, the Sabbath is worthless. And, and I would say, and, and I'm going to embarrass myself perhaps this evening by admitting that in my own ministry in the past, I have bought into the idea that sharing concepts and thoughts is the same as freeing a soul. And evangelism takes on the form of merely sharing ideas rather than touching and changing the human heart. But the work of rebuilding the wall 
will never be complete or fulfilled if the two are not joined together. Ellen White writes in the book Prophets and Kings that the work of restoration and reform carried on by the returned exiles under the leadership of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah presents a picture of the work of spiritual restoration that is to be worked out in the closing days of Earth's history. What was literal for them becomes spiritual for us. She goes on, the prophet here describes a people who, in a time of general departure from truth and righteousness, are seeking to restore the principles that are the foundation of the kingdom of God. I want to ask a question. Are you that people? Are you that person? Is that the burden on your heart? Would you say that we live in a time of general departure from truth and righteousness? I would ask, is it just general? When you watch the news, if you see what happens in our world, can you say that it's just a general departure from truth and righteousness? In some cases, it appears to be more of an extreme departure from truth and righteousness. But nonetheless, in that that context, that societal context, she describes a people who are seeking to restore Seeking is a, uh, linguistically, what's a, the word seeking? It's a verb. It, it, it conveys activity. It conveys aggressiveness. It, it conveys an intent to do something and to accomplish something. Does it not? And are we here seeking to restore the waste places the principles that are the foundation of the kingdom of God. That is our call. It is the invitation that God offers to each one of us right here, tonight, right now. A city without walls, the Bible says, is a vulnerable city. Not one of security, not one of protection, not one of prosperity, but very vulnerable a position that none of us really desire to be in. I'm going to read one more line from this. Again, we often focus on the Sabbath, but this one line, she says, this is Prophets and Kings again, in the time of the end, every divine institution is to be restored. How many institutions? Now, when you think of an institution... What's the first thing that comes to your mind? A school, a bank, a medical institution. But is this the type of institution that God is really referring to? No, the word institution means that which is established. And what's being, what's being called here of us in Isaiah 58 is a reversal of, of fortunes entirely a reversal of circumstances entirely, restoring everything that God had originally established just like it was intended to be from the beginning. It's the all. We go back to Hezekiah. God's not looking for a partial restoration. 
He wants us to display in full all of the treasures he offers to mankind. And, you know, going back to the theme here to restore the waste places and being that this is an agricultural conference, I would like to present to you the idea that agriculture is intimately bound to that idea on the screen. The scripture there in Isaiah 58 says that the foundations of many generations would be raised up. In the Psalms, you know, it says, I believe this is Psalms 11. It says, if the foundations be, what? Destroyed, what shall the righteous do? And I want to propose to you this evening that agriculture is the very foundation of every other component work of our church. It is, the, it is the foundational building block of every other thing we do as individuals, our mission, our medicine, our evangelism. It is the foundation of everything that we do. I'll read you a couple lines. Taken from Ellen White, she writes, that in regard to parenting, that our children should be until the years of eight or nine, you know, free as lambs, Primarily learning from where? From nature. From the garden. As they age and move into the school years, the more traditional school years, she writes the following. I have been shown that the study of agricultural lines should be the A, B, and C of the educational work of our schools. I don't think you can get any more foundational than those first three letters of the alphabet, can you? In regard to medicine, she writes, never, never, she uses the word never twice, not me, never, never should our sanitariums be established in cities. They should be established in the country amidst the pleasant surroundings and in connection with plenty of land, she writes, this is a positive necessity. It's foundational to our service to the community. If you go back to Isaiah 58, it speaks of giving bread to the hungry. And how can you feed the hungry if you have no food to give them? And this is not just symbolic food, although that's, that's certainly true too. But this is literal food that Jesus speaks of as well. And where there is no farming, there is no food. You've all heard of the drought in California, right? Throughout much of the Central Valley of California, and the Central Valley of California is one of the, the most prolific agricultural regions in the world, there are these signs all over the place that say food grows where water flows. Has anybody seen that? Uh, by the way, anybody here from California know the Johnsons are? Anybody else from California? You see these signs all over the place, but yet we are disconnected as a church from, from the opportunities we have to feed the poor and meet the real needs of people. And Ellen White, not to go into this right here, right now, she writes extensively about using agriculture as a means to teach people to live off the land, for the, the poor to be able to provide means for themselves. She goes on and on and on with this in more than a couple of places. 
But agriculture is also foundational, if not critical, to our mission as a church as a whole. When you think of our commission as a church, you'll probably think first of a passage in Revelation. The three angels' messages. And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the, to preach unto the whole world, to paraphrase. Those three angels' messages have been one of the distinctive features of our church since its inception more than 150 years ago. But I want you to listen to this statement. I want you to open your hearts to these next few words. She writes, there is too much among us. There is too much clinging to old customs. And because of this, we are far behind where we should be in the development of the third angel's message. The very next words are the education learned on the school farm is the education most essential to our missionaries. I want you to mentally masticate on this, chew on it for a while. Because she just made the reform of education crucial to the fulfillment of our church's mission. She just made agriculture the founding block of education, therefore making agriculture crucial and necessary to our church's fulfillment of its mission and taking the three angels' message to the world. But you'll remember that first angel possesses the gospel. And we're not to get too much caught up on the beasts and torments and seals of God and marks of beasts and buying and selling. What we ought to be caught up in is the gospel of Jesus Christ is the message which the whole world must hear and accept if they will be saved. And she just made the reform of education and making agriculture a part, a part of education foundational as a prerequisite, if you will, to fulfilling our mission as a church. Let me say that in a very different way. It does not matter what other type of evangelism we do as a people or how extensively it is done. If the work of reforming education and combining agriculture with education is not done, we will go nowhere. She says that here herself. Before we can carry the message of present truth in all its fullness to other countries, we must first break every yoke. She's quoting from Isaiah 58 again. We must come into the line of true education, walking in the wisdom of God and not in the wisdom of the world. She is suggesting that we are captive to the world's wisdom. And until we break the yokes that bind us to worldly thinking and worldly methodology, whether it's in education or in medicine or in parenting or in evangelism or in service or whatever other thing it happens to be, until we break those yokes, we as a people, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but it is honest reality which we must all accept that we will go absolutely nowhere. 
our desires to see he who we love come will not be realized. And as long as we delay, even if we're dead, we will sit in the grave until this right here is accomplished. We will not see the day of eternity until this restoration of the waste places happens. So the work of restoration in our closing time here, I would like to draw some parallels between what Zerubbabel and his Ezra and Nehemiah accomplished and what that means to us. Before I forget, I skip something in my notes on education here. Every major revival in Bible times was preceded by a revival in educational principles. A revival which in most cases included an agricultural background. Let me give you some examples. When you think of Moses, who led Israel out of Egypt, where did he get his education? Farming. Shepherding sheep. If you think of the man right before him, the most significant person right before Moses in Scripture, it was Joseph. And Joseph, you know his story, kind of a spoiled little brat. His brothers didn't like him. He winds up being sold to the Ishmaelites who carried him down into Egypt. And he's sitting in jail eventually. And Pharaoh has a dream. But if you could use one word to describe the content of Pharaoh's dream, what would it be? Food. Joseph's an interesting story to me because Pharaoh was so disconnected from food that he couldn't discern what really is a very simple dream. I was sitting on the plane today talking to a man named Randy, and he was telling me about his 40 chickens that he has in the uh, foothills above uh, Los Angeles. He said he gets people, he gets quite a number of eggs from his 40 chickens, and he was telling me about people buying eggs from him and such and such, and someone once asked him, do you need a rooster to get eggs? Which reminds me of Joel Salatin, you know Joel Salatin, telling the story of someone visiting his farm and asking, are the cows with horns the boys? Unfortunately, while we laugh, a room full of farmers and gardeners here most certainly realizes that most Americans think that milk comes from the grocery store and that produce comes off a truck. And we're about as disconnected from food as Pharaoh was. But to come back to the point here, it was Joseph's agricultural background that gave him the ability to interpret the dream. I want you to notice something in Scripture, and and when you have the time, go back to Genesis 41 and reread this. Because in many places in the Bible where a, a vision or dream was given, God often has to give the interpretation. That happened with uh, Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar gets a dream. Daniel did not know what the dream meant. He and his three uh, friends went into a serious moment of prayer. And what did God do? God gave Daniel the answer to the dream. 
You can read all the way through Genesis 41, and you will not find a single spot where God was asked by Joseph what the dream meant. He listened to the content of the dream. He interpreted in light of his agricultural background and knew exactly what it meant. If you think through the story, it says there were seven cows. The first seven cows were pretty fat, nice-looking cows, well-fed cows. Then there were seven cows that came afterward, and they were a little bit on the opposite side. They were suffering from a lack of food. Then there were seven ears of grain that were plump and fat and full and, and, and nice and, and, you know, full. Followed by seven ears of grain, which were the exact opposite. But do you remember why in the Bible, why those ears of grain were withered at the end? There was a little detail It says they were blasted with an east wind. And now put the whole story together in reverse. Joseph said, I understand that perfectly. The deserts of Arabia lie exactly east of Egypt. And there's going to be a shift in climate where the dry east winds bring in dry air from Arabia. And there will be a lack of water for the crops in Egypt. And what was once really well watered will become really dry and the crops will wither up. And once the crops wither up, what do the animals no longer have to eat? Food. And so Joseph says in very simple terms, you have a serious famine coming. You got seven years to get ready for it. And then you got seven years to live through. And it was all based upon his previous experience with God never sharing with him in vision or dream what that dream meant. We live in a society today that is absolutely no different. We are so disconnected from food. We have no idea where food comes from and how it works. But Joseph's experience set him up to be a man of great importance to Egypt and also to his brothers in Israel. You go through the Bible. Elijah. Elijah is a little bit of a, a... It's a little more subtle. All we know about Elijah is he was a Tishbite from the land of where? Gilead, it says. But do you remember where Gilead was and why the Israelites lived in Gilead? When you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, and when the Israelites were coming up on the promised land, there were a couple of tribes that had large flocks. And they looked at the land of Gilead east of the Jordan River there and said, this is prime farm land. Please let us stay here. Moses said, that's fine. As long as you fight with your brethren, you can come back here. After we take possession of the promised land, you can have the land east of the Jordan. And so Elijah grew up the Tishbite in the land of Gilead. What was a man doing in the land of Gilead? He was farming. Elisha is simple. Elisha was doing what when Elijah called him? John the Baptist grew up where? Jesus himself Ellen White says, grew up in the rural districts of Nazareth. And a very, very interesting quote from Justin Martyr, the second century Christian, says that Jesus grew up in his father's carpenter shop making agricultural tools. You familiar with Justin Martyr? And all of a sudden, Jesus' intimate knowledge of agriculture pops up all over the Gospels. The story of the sower, the story of the man who leased out his vineyard, and on and on and on, Jesus betrays a very intimate familiarity with agronomy. 
which I suggest to you was learned firsthand. Because why would the master gardener who put the first pair of humans in the garden not give his son the very same experience? And while it's not mentioned directly in the scripture, Jesus' language betrays again a very intimate familiarity with the act of growing food. You go through many of the reformers, they were farmers, and bringing us down even to our own church and the Advent movement who was started by William Miller when God called him off his farm. Every religious revival of significance has been accompanied by a corresponding revival in education, which was often based in the land. There are a couple parallels, and I'd like to close, between the work of Cyrus, or excuse me, the work of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel, and some things for you to think about in regard to agriculture in our world today, in our church, in our mission. Number one is that the whole project started with a decree by Cyrus. It was backed by him financially. And the most challenging thought to me is that the church was sleeping. And it took a decree from an otherwise pagan and unbelieving man to initiate the work of reform. And I look at our world today and much of the agricultural work, much of the medicine work, much of the really good holistic type stuff comes from people outside of our faith. And it should be a shot across the bow, a shot in the arm that calls us to reconsider the truth that we are letting slip by before the rocks cry out any louder. Number two is that the work of rebuilding the temple happened first, by the way. But there would be no comparison between the second temple and the first temple. The work of restoration right now is an unfortunate reality that what we could have done as a church will never be the potential that we are able to live up to. Unfortunately, Ellen White says the same thing, that what we could have done in the past will not happen in the future to the same extent. When the men building the temple in Israel in ancient times, rebuilding the temple, saw it, and they had lived old enough, long enough to see the first temple, you remember that they wept. It's an unfortunate realization on my part that what we have yet to do in front of us will never be what it could have been. Except that that second temple was special in a different way. Haggai chapter 2, if you're familiar, says that a certain person, the desire of all nations, would personally walk that temple. I don't know your background. I did ask a little bit at the beginning. We are not here at this conference. I would hope that this association and each of us as farmers is not gathered here to build and improve our farms strictly on an agronomic or economic level. I would hope that we are not here to castle build and daydream about our own fortunes and our own prosperity. We are to build a temple through this work which the second coming of Christ will be the direct result of. We may not have the, the privilege of experiencing everything that we could have experienced, but we have the privilege that the people who, who built the first temple did not have, and that is the second coming of Christ. 
We are building a mission, not a farm. We are building a cause, not growing things. If we're to get better at anything, it's fulfilling our mission, not growing food. That's just a part to the bigger picture. To me, that's a beautiful promise that you and I have the opportunity to start or perpetuate a movement which will result in us standing under the tree of life. That's far better than the alternatives. Number three, the third parallel. Those three men were opposed severely in their work. And this is not a work for the faint of heart. I favor an approach that says you ought to know what you're getting into. Jesus says you got to count the cost. And what you and I, many of us here, are setting off on as a journey will be a journey of difficulties and hardships. It is not a journey for the faint of heart. This reminds me of a statement by Mark Twain. In the beginning of a change, he says, a time of revolution, the patriot is a rare man, brave, but hated and scorned. When his cause succeeds, Mark Twain says, the timid join him because it costs nothing to be a patriot. Right now, the work we initiate is a work that many of us will initiate alone in the midst of great opposition. The second coming of Christ, the desire of nations seen with the eye will not be realized without effort and commitment. If you farmed a little while, you realize that farming's not always easy, is it? It's often hard work, is it not? Growing things is a setup to realize how bad you are at growing things sometimes. But the promise of the reward is worth the opposition and the effort. Number four, the introductory verses of the book of Nehemiah. After the temple had been rebuilt, one of Nehemiah's associates came to visit him. And it says in the first chapter that Nehemiah asked about Jerusalem, about the remnant that were there from the captivity. And unfortunately, the news was that the wall was still broken down and that the people that were there were suffering from great affliction. And the verse here, verse uh, 4, if you would turn with me there, if you have your Bible, we'll end with, um, or this will be our last verse we look at. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. It's Nehemiah's response. A response that each of us needs to have. Verse 4 says, It came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and what? Wept and mourned certain days. Fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. My friends, this evening, you and I should be deeply stirred, deeply troubled, deeply upset, deeply sorrowful about the things that we see around us in the world. We should be sincerely and deeply motivated by the affliction of other people and make a commitment as Nehemiah did to change it. Number five is not everyone is going to want to go along with you. 
The unfortunate reality when the Israelites had the opportunity to return, Ezra says that many of them didn't. You're going to find that many Christians, many Adventists are quite comfortable living in Persia. You're going to find that many people enjoy their homes in Babylon. That many people are quite happy being Roman, even if it means captivity. But we must go alone. Those who go alone will eventually and inevitably inspire someone else to go with them. But first, you must perhaps go alone. Ezra, we're told, expected a large number would go. You would think here, this is the most exciting thing that we have to talk about, right? That's why we came all the way to Texas to talk about this, because we're all passionate about it. And for many of us, it doesn't make sense why anybody wouldn't be passionate about this, does it? But the reality is, a lot of people don't want anything to do with farming. I once heard on the news a governor in the southern states trying to reinitiate jobs in his state, encouraging people to take jobs in agriculture. And I saw on the news the lady's response. She said, my family came out of that, and I ain't going back. Many people in society have the perception that farming is not for those who want to move up in life. I would petition to you again not to be redundant. I do want to move up in life. I want to move permanently up in life, and so do you. But sometimes to get there, you go alone. And lastly, there will be the potential for distractions, family distractions, financial distractions, education distractions. The devil has a strange way of multiplying distractions, doesn't he? Reasons why something can't be, shouldn't be, couldn't be done. So Nehemiah, it's one of my favorite passages of scripture. Nehemiah was being tempted he was being lured away by Sanballat and Geshem, trying to distract him from the work of rebuilding the wall. I want to read you his response to them in Nehemiah 6, verse 3. He said, I am doing a great work. And I cannot come down because why should the work cease? So I can meet with you. The voice of distraction is the voice that speaks to all of us. And if the second coming of Christ, the mission of our church, the realization of eternity will ever be ours, our words must be Nehemiah's words I am not coming down to you. I have a great work to do. This evening, I would like to ask a couple of questions. I believe that God is working here in your hearts. But I know sitting here, just like me, are those of you who are tempted to view other treasures greater than the one treasure. And I'd like to ask you to make a fair more than fair exchange. Perhaps someone sitting here this evening 
is struggling with their relationship with Christ. Jesus appeals to the heart, but it seems the world appeals more loudly. The treasures of heaven, perhaps being offered to you, seem dim compared to the treasures of the world. And just quietly, without looking around, someone who would say, that's me, Lord, and I want to learn that you are the chief treasure. I see a couple hands, and God bless you. There's one treasure above all treasures, but you don't truly value him. And I want to say, Lord, help me see you as my treasure. I'd like to end with a challenge to you in the form of a question. No response, no hands, no standing. The students the last couple days, students always want to take tests and give the answer the teacher wants to hear. I say the real test of life is the real test. And what we do is far more important than what we show with our hands here this evening. But I'd like to ask you to leave with the intention to study the role of agriculture in fulfilling our church's mission. Not agriculture as a means of self-preservation, not country living as a way to escape temptation. Those things are all true. But the real thing, the primary thing, is a means of fulfilling our mission. To fulfill the gospel's spread to the world so that we can go home. And thirdly, I'd like to ask you to make a commitment. I know some of you in your farming, perhaps some of you are from schools, perhaps some of you are trying to do things, gardening with your children. It's not quite gone the way you wanted it to go. But I'd like you to make a commitment to not be distracted, to not come down from the great work that God has for you to be distracted by those who don't want to see you fulfill it. Would you stand with me for prayer? Our Father in heaven, we meet here this evening, but I know that even myself I don't truly understand the scope of what I've just shared. I don't fully understand all the ramifications and the consequences, the positive consequences of this meeting here this weekend and the effect that it will have upon the world. I know merely what you've said and what you've asked us to do, but I don't know the full extent of how good it will be. I pray tonight for those three things that I I just mentioned. I pray for each of us. I pray for myself to make you the treasure above all treasures. I pray that I, that we, would make a commitment to understanding the importance of this work to our mission as a church to serve other people not merely to serve ourselves. And that you would make us 
like Nehemiah, men who would not be deterred from the work of rebuilding the path to dwell in, the wall of that city, the temple where the Lord himself would walk. Lord, if you do those three things, it'll be a miracle, but you are a God of miracles. And so we trust this to your hands in full expectation that what you've commanded, you will enable us to perform and that you will finish your work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.